Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. I am fangirling out. I'm not going to do it beyond this moment, but I am a huge fangirl of who our guest is. Uh, we have Reagan Chastain, like the Reagan Chastain on today. And let me tell you, Reagan, I don't even think I told you this when we were talking before, but you have been one of the biggest influences for me. I told you I've been following you for years, but there were like three or four key people that allowed me, inspired me, gave me courage to begin a fat liberation journey, kind of like beyond body positivity and into, hang on, what does this really mean? The systemic implications of what I'm experiencing, what others experience, and you've been that for me for years. And I send everyone to your Hayes Health Sheets, which we will absolutely talk about. I'm like, no, that's wrong what the doctor said. Here's the sheet. And I know I'm not supposed to use it that way, but I do it anyway, because <laughs> you're the reason I ask for bigger blood pressure cuffs every time I go to the doctor and I lecture the technician saying, what are you trying to put on my wrist or on my, my arm right now? Do you think this is going to work? I'm very insufferable. Thank you very much for that. Um, and your newsletter is incredible. Um, I'm just, I am a huge fan. And I'm so grateful that you're here with me to talk here with all of us and that everyone else gets to just ooh, partake in your wisdom as well. So thank you, Reagan. Oh, thank you. That Sorry, I'm tearing up a little bit. That's I'm so glad that I had a chance to support someone who's such a fierce advocate and activist. And I'm just really grateful to get to hang out today and talk with you. Just thank you. I get to hang out with you. Like, I'm just like, this is so cool. <laughs> Super awesome. Yay. Um, so, Reagan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You have a very illustrious <laughs> background. So tell us, brag a little bit. Sure. So I'm a professional speaker, writer. I'm a researcher. I just um, passed the exam to be a board certified patient advocate. Um, and my work is predominantly in the intersections of weight science, weight stigma, health and healthcare. Um, I also have a bunch of fitness certifications. I actually got my first fitness certification in 1996, just out of high school. And um, I was deeply entrenched in diet culture at that time. And so I think it's helpful because when I talk about things that people are doing wrong and mistakes and harm that's being done, like I have done most of those things personally. And so I think it helps me relate and also, you know, be relatable and that it's not that I'm coming from a holier than thou place I'm coming from and I've been privileged enough to learn better. And I just want to share that with other folks. Oh, so good. And I also saw in the bio you sent over, and I think I remember reading this before, you hold the Guinness book of world records for 
about marathon sure. running. Yeah, I'm, that's amazing to me. So I've always enjoyed doing fitnessy things. And I really want to be clear about this because there's this, this thing that we call the good fatty, bad fatty dichotomy, which is the idea that fat people who perform health to the satisfaction of those who are judging people, those people think that we should be treated better than other people. And I benefit from the privilege of that. And so I want to help kill it, kill it, kill it. <laughs> so I want to be super clear that like participating in fitness does not make people better. I've done both. I can tell you for sure that watching a Netflix marathon and completing a marathon are morally equivalent activities. Um, if you're slow enough, they're also <laughs> both a way to spend an entire day and night. Um, but yeah, so I <laughs> I have always enjoyed sort of fitnessy challenges. And so I do currently hold the Guinness World Record for heaviest um, cis woman to complete a marathon. Amazing. Wow. Wow. Um, Oh, I'm so excited to dive into all the details of what we are trying to kill. Um, but let's start with your relationship to the word fat. I super duper fully embrace the word fat uh, to a degree where I am comfortable making other people uncomfortable <laughs> by personally identifying as fat. And here's the thing. Uh, for me, it's a reclaiming term in a lot of ways, right? It's a way that my bullies know that they can't have my lunch money anymore, that they can't insult me by simply accurately describing my body. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, it's an important term for me because it doesn't medicalize or pathologize my body the way that the various O words do. So all of these terms were created, literally invented, made up to pathologize and medicalize bodies based on size, like my body. And so I reject that and using the word fat is part of how I reject it. But I also know that fat, like there are people who could be identified that way who don't align with the word. And I totally respect that. So I also will use like higher weight or larger bodies, basically any term that accurately describes fat bodies that doesn't pathologize us and that wasn't used as a schoolyard taunt you know, is sort of a word I might use in different situations. But yeah, I, the word fat, I love it. I embrace it. I use it all the time. Yeah. And I'm super curious, and maybe this is like this, this, these two questions tied together, because I'm very curious about if you have always embraced that word. And I'm also very curious about how you got into this work, how you got to be, you're, you're a globally recognized <laughs> person, speaker, writer, thinker on, on weight stigma. And I wonder, is there a connection between those two trajectories? I mean, maybe. There's a lot of luck and privilege involved in it as well. Um, I So I actually started my journey. Um, personally, I didn't know. This was like back in uh, maybe, I think I started like looking into stuff in like 2004. And so there wasn't, there was a thriving community that I just didn't know anything about, right? People have been doing this work since long before I was born and a lot of them with a lot less privilege than I have. But I was, my background is research methods and statistics and I'm a massive nerd. And so I had gone through a phase, like I was trying to diet to lose weight and I was yo-yo dieting. And so I had first decided, all right, look, I'm going to separate this liking myself thing from this losing weight thing. Because like losing weight to like myself is not working out for me on a massive scale. Did you just come to that on your own? Because that's a huge step. It's, I did. And again, tons of luck and privilege, but I was in a, like a super strict, um, medically supervised diet and I had lost weight and now I was gaining it back. Yeah. And so it was this moment where I told them I wanted to quit and they were like, you can't quit. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I can. <laughs> and so they brought me into this little room and this woman came in with a binder of pictures of like fat woman just kind of hanging out and being fat. And she said, maybe you don't know it, but this is what you look like. 
And these women are going to die alone in front of the TV eating bonbons. And is that what you want for your life? And aren't you tired of hating your body? This was a medically supervised pro. What the fuck? Oh, my God. Yeah. So this is not okay in any way. But it, it for me, was like this seminal moment of this work. Because I was like, first of all, I... I look like these women, like I thought I looked so much quote unquote worse than the women in the pictures. But I was like, wait, I don't hate their bodies. So it was like that first inkling. And I grew up in rural America on cattle ranches, so I didn't know what a bomb bomb was. So that part went over my head. <laughs> their whole plan backfired. I like, love what? it. But I was like, I am, yeah, I'm tired of hating my body. Like I'll, I've been hating my body like it's a job and I'm not thinner or healthier or happy. Yeah, I'm tired of this. And so I like went and sat in my car for like an hour in the parking lot of this place just trying to figure out like, what am I going to do? Like this is, and I, at that time, all I had were lists of all the stuff I was going to do when I was thin. So like I separated this. So I, at the time, I think what really gave me the ability to do this was that I created this two-part plan. So I was like, first, going to learn to like myself. Second, going to lose weight to be healthy. So by like just setting that aside for some later time, I gave myself all the space I needed to create a relationship with my body that was built on, you know, trust and respect and, you know, all of these pieces. But then when I went to the, so I got to the second part of the plan and with this big nerdness that I have in my background is research methods and statistics, I was like, well, I'm just going to do a literature review. Oh, I was going to get all the studies because I hadn't, I had just done whatever diet a doctor told me to do. So I was like, I'm going to find the best diet through the research and that's what I'm going to do. So that was my whole plan. And so I got through this research and I was like, what the actual fuck? Like there's, I did, I actually was so, I like all the feelings, disbelief, defensiveness, anger. I went and I did the whole review a second time. Oh my God. <laughs> and I cannot stress enough. I was not in school. I was not getting credit for this. I had a regular corporate job. I didn't publish. Like, and I didn't, again, I did not understand at that time because social media wasn't big like it is now. Like, I think I might have been on Live Journal by then, right? But like, there was nothing. So I just didn't know, right? I was just doing this, like, you know. Um, which is sort of embarrassing that I was like, I'm the first person. Like, no, I'm so not the first person on any of this, right? But um, but yeah, so I was like, oh shit, like no, there's not a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people are actually succeeding long-term. And so that got me to dig into like, well, what's happening here and how are we all fooled? And so I started uh, my blog, Dances with Fat, with like in this personal journey, but mostly because a judge, I was competing in ballroom dance at the time. And a judge told me she couldn't stand to look at me because my dress showed my arms. And she told me several times, pinned up against an elevator, I couldn't stand to look at you. What? And what happened was my background in social justice, like I, so I staged my first protest in kindergarten. I was just like <laughs> that kid. My, thank God for my mom, because she was just like every step of the way supporting me and there for me. Like she's amazing still to this day. Um, but she, I, so I, you know, had this, this kindergarten protested and I had then, you know, continued social justice and in college um, came out as uh, queer and did a ton of queer and trans liberation work and solidarity, anti-racism training, that kind of thing. But I never thought of fat people as this group of people who were oppressed. Right. And so this moment with this fat phobe uh, dance judge, I was like, oh, like, yeah, no, this is like a thing. And so that was what made me start the Dances with Fat blog, just to talk about being fat and the fat phobia I was experiencing. And then I kind of 
started to write about greater topics and then eventually learned I was part of a huge community that had been doing this. So yeah, sorry, long story, long. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. Well, and I just love that both of these big moments for you were about someone else trying to tell you what your body is supposed to be. And I feel like there's that kindergarten rebelliousness in there. Like, um, no. <laughs> Always. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is the perfect tie into um, what we're going to chat about in this episode, because I think this is probably going to be a two-parter, which is the fact of what you just said, which can I just say, no one will believe me who is <laughs> not, who doesn't want to, which is that there is no research that shows weight loss is possible for more than a very like few percentage of people for any length of time. And like people just don't believe me, Reagan. So what I thought would be really good to talk about together is the culprits. I know there's a lot, but the culprits of perpetuating, I think a lot of this and would, which would be companies like Weight Watchers, Noom, I did a medically supervised one called Dr. Bernstein's. These are the, you know, all these different weight loss organizations that capitalize on, I mean, it's, it's lies that, or misrepresentation of the data. And I just want to dig into this with you a little further because I'm always shocked when I say, and I point people to your work. I point people to episodes of maintenance phase where the research is dissected. Like there, there is proof and yet people will not believe it. So I want to talk about that piece as well, but let's set up what's actually happening here. So I don't know if you want to start with one of those companies or kind of just a general, what does the quote unquote research tell us and how is it manipulated by companies trying to sell weight loss products? Yeah, so the research in general finds that almost everyone can lose weight short term within maybe about a year. And then almost everyone regains their weight within years two through five with up to 66% regaining more weight than they lost. And I don't want to be super clear. I don't think there's anything wrong with being fatter, becoming fatter. I do think there's something wrong with something that's being considered a healthcare intervention that's prescribed to 70% of the population that has the opposite of the intended effect the majority of the time. Yes. Especially considering that the hand-wringing that the diet industry does now is, well, look how much fatter people are than they were, when what we've been given is an intervention that makes people fatter. Like, that's that should be a galloping shock. That's as expected, right? <laughs> so that's, you know, you don't have to be like, have a PhD in calculus to work that out. So what happened was, and Weight Watchers is one of the primary uh, architects of this myth. So if you look, their original paperwork was filed based on a repeat business model. So what they knew was this thing that the body has a two-part biological response to intentional weight loss attempts. Mm -hmm. So at the first part, it loses weight short-term while it tries to deal with the fact that now like there's not enough food it assumes and also we have to maybe run from bears because they're like we're doing all this exercise and there's not enough food. And our body just doesn't have a way to know like, oh, this person might, you know, the person inhabiting me thinks I would be more attractive if I look different. All it can be like is I'm sending hunger signals. They're not sending food. Clearly there's not food. 
right? And then you go run on a treadmill and it's like, oh, and also the bears, right? So <laughs> so yeah. during the first part, while it's adjusting to this new state, the body does lose weight. But then it has all of these systems meant to prevent death from famine and running from bears, right? So it's like, okay, no problem. I'm going to slow down our metabolism. I'm going to increase the hormone that tells you that you're hungry. I'm going to decrease the hormone that tells you that you're full. I'm going to change on a physiological level, dropping type two muscle, for example, just whatever I can do to become essentially what ends up being a weight regaining, weight maintaining machine. And this is our biology. Like this is not, we have no control over this. This is just what happens. Yeah. Yes. This is not about willpower. And studies show that this this state continues for years after people stop dieting, right? So there's, and we're not sure how like long-term studies don't exist, but for the first few years, it shows that this state continues, right? So what Weight Watchers and other bastions of the diet industry did was take advantage of this by creating this repeat business model wherein they take credit for the first part of the biological response when people are losing the weight. And then they convince people and everyone else to blame themselves and to blame yeah. them. I'm the problem. It's me. To to quote another little fat phobic moment we had recently in the in the media with Taylor Swift's video. But yeah, it, it, we're blamed. Yeah. Yeah. And so then we turn around and go back to them. And I, this happens so often that especially pre-COVID when I would be live, I would give a talk and I would talk about this and someone would come down and they would be a fat person standing in front of me, um, having rushed down to talk to me after this talk and was standing in, and stood in line to say, I don't think you should talk bad about Weight Watchers because I've done it six times and it worked every time. No. And they don't know what they're saying. They're not getting it. Oh. I'm just like slow blinking because I don't want to make this person feel terrible. But also, like, what is your definition of work, right? But this is how much, how successful the weight loss industry has been in architecting this myth. And the the phrase that they pretty often use is, well, they go back to their old habits, which is a pretty disingenuous way to say that starvation is unsustainable. Yeah. Yeah, because that's what they're really saying. Because what intentional weight loss is is let's eat less than our body needs to survive and hopes it and hopes that it will eat itself and become smaller. Mm-hmm. That's not sustainable. So the idea, like old habits, meaning like feeding your body enough food to do what you're asking it to do, like that is a pretty disingenuous term. But it's how they have architected this and then you know wheedled their way into science and medicine with research that is abhorrently bad fail freshman research methods bad, mm-hmm. but that gets peer reviewed because everybody is under this same, like, you know, myth and everyone has been duped in this way. And then Noom, so that, so Weight Watchers has been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Before we get to Noom, I just want to say one thing that I think you're actually really good at doing. And I just want to highlight for people listening is that one of the things I love about your newsletter and a lot of work that you do is you investigate who did the quote unquote research that proves that, you know, this weight loss intervention, quote unquote, works. And what? Most of them are often paid by the company or the research has been sponsored or the beneficiary in some financial way. So there, it's like there is no objectivity possible, which further clouds it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. The study will be funded by Weight Watchers, the people or Noom or whoever, the people doing the study will be employees. Yeah, this is incredibly common within weight loss research and other research like pharmaceutical research. This is a a massive problem, but the weight loss industry has really like 
done an incredible job of creating its own research and then using that research to justify itself in ways where like pretty often, like you'll see in my, my newsletter, I talk about this a lot where the conclusion doesn't match the data. The one you just sent, put out recently, it was like, okay, but that wasn't the conclusion that they reached, but the headline was taken and for clickbait. And I just, I mean, I've become a conspiracy theorist with this stuff because it's like, who's pulling the threads? Anyone who read the study, read the conclusion would not have pulled that headline from it that is vilifying fatness. What? So I just, I don't get it, Reagan. They're taking advantage. So this isn't accidental. This is a very targeted, they're taking advantage of a lot of things. First of all, that um, as newspapers shrink and reporters get paid less and less, People are covering beats that they aren't qualified to cover, that they never wanted to cover. This is not the reporter's fault necessarily, but people are covering science who are scientifically illiterate and they had no intention of ever covering science. And they're not fact-checking, I don't think, like they used to, like deep dives necessarily. Or they can't. They're also taking advantage of this, of paywalls. Mm. So you see the conclusion that says this study showed that this was a high-efficacy intervention. That's available to everyone but you got to pay your 35 bucks and be able to read the study and dig into the discussion. Cause they're not in a hurry to like highlight this information that like everybody lost two pounds. Right? right. So they are hiding, they're burying it in the discussion and like who has time to do that. And so it's not just the media, but also healthcare professionals. A lot of my speaking is to healthcare professionals who don't understand or aren't aware that they can't trust the conclusion of the study and they shouldn't have to be, they should be able to, t- to trust the conclusion of the study. So the diet industry and the weight loss industry in general, they're taking advantage of these things Mm -hmm. and they're putting out press releases. And then some reporter who's having to write way more than they should have to on subjects they know nothing about is just has to trust like, yeah, this is a peer reviewed study. Of course, this press release is accurate. It's a perfect system. Like it's built so perfectly. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to hear what it's like talking to um, healthcare providers, but let's let's start with let's go to Noom next because Noom took a particularly interesting approach with their marketing. Yeah, so the first commercial I saw for Noom, I was just like, "What the fuck?" So their initial marketing was, "We're a brand new way to lose weight, and we can help you keep the weight off for life." Yeah. <laughs> and I just want to point out those are mutually exclusive statements. <laughs> right. Either you're brand new or you have long-term data showing that people <laughs> keep this weight loss until they die. Like these are two different mutually exclusive statements. But again, because with weight loss, we're all so convinced that, you know, everybody but us has the answer and that we're the problem, we're the reason it doesn't work. Right. And then they're like, we're totally new. And then their next commercial was like, eat grapes instead of raisins like oh my god 1987 called they want their crappy diet (laughs) advice back (laughs) nothing about this is new except that it's giving you old advice on a new ai platform which is ridiculous right but they really got a lot of of reach and people i i want to like point out people don't get the idea that they should lose weight out of nowhere their doctors are telling them this. Their family and friends are telling them this. And so it's not like people are, and and all of these same people, healthcare professionals are telling them, if you try hard enough, you can lose this weight. Yeah, it's all discipline and willpower. And I've heard that my whole life. Yes. And yeah, and it's, it's 
so paradoxical because I am I am one of those weight cycling people where I lost 100 pounds, gained 110, lost another 100, gained 120. If that's not discipline yeah. and willpower, I don't know what is. Yeah. And so it's this, these companies are taking advantage of and duping a lot of people. And so the fact that people are fooled isn't because everybody's just naive and, you know, stupid. It's that we've all been taught this from, you know, birth at this point. And these companies know that and they're taking advantage of that. And so that's what I always want to point out. Like, this is not a, an issue with the end users, you know, although those are the folks we're trying to educate because these industries are making, you know, what did the diet industry make? $72 billion. So they have plenty of money to hire the best marketers in the world. And they're not going to stop until we make them stop, until it stops being profitable. Yeah. Well, and what Noom did too is they had this whole, oh, it's the psychology. We, we have <laughs> discovered the psychology behind it. And so they really went with that psychology angles. If they've biohacked our brains <laughs> to help us permanently lose weight. And they played up that a lot. Yes. And you know what else, else they played up? A 16-week study. Like, uh, you know, this study or another study, it's nine months. And they this was the study. So when they first came out, I started, you know, communicating with them. And I was like, hey, please send me the long-term data, right? You can keep it off for life. I'd love to see that. Most people lost some weight in nine months is what they were basing that on. Wow. Like it was so, it's just, it's just a fraud. It's straight up a fraud. And why is there no, like, I don't know, this is so naive of me and I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why is there no regulatory body or some kind of institutional oversight, maybe from the government, maybe from the, I don't know, do we have like a department of health? Like, like is there no one that requires truth to these claims? So in the States, they're taking advantage of the gutting of these regulatory agencies, starting with the Reagan administration by conservative uh, regimes. So, um, for example, the FTC years ago, and uh, Lynn McAfee, who's an incredible activist in the space, was in the meeting with the FTC where they told Weight Watchers they wanted them to do five-year studies. And Weight Watchers straight up refused. And what they said was, and I'm quoting, it would be too depressing for our clients. Pardon me, and they were just allowed to say no. So what they ended up with was these um, the disclaimers that run in tiny print: results not typical, or the average person will lose one to two pounds. But nobody wants to think that they're going to be the average person. First of all, we're all like, "I'm going to do it better than anyone has ever done it." Yeah, and then there's doctors. Like I was on an episode of the doctors, and the weight loss doctor who was um, it was uh, myself and Greg Dodell, who's an incredible weight neutral endocrinologist, and then this other doctor who uh, has a book out about weight loss. Um, said, well, yeah, it only works five percent of the time, but like that's just because everyone else isn't doing it right, essentially. And this myth is what props this whole thing up, right? And I want to point out that in medical practice. And the data that goes back that shows a 95% failure rate goes back to Stunkard et al. in 1959, which looked at the previous 30 years of data. So data from the 1920s, a century of data now. So in medical practice, any kind of intervention, if there's a 95% failure rate for 100 years, like you don't just keep prescribing that and say, well, do it harder. That's not right. Okay. And so medical school training, 
medical research, like, again, it's just all part of this huge system. Yeah. And you said you started to feel like a conspiracy theorist. It is like you can't talk about this for very long without sounding like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist because it is in many ways a real conspiracy. I think this is why people don't listen to me anywhere who are not open and curious and interested in actually questioning their own beliefs because it's like, no, but everyone knows fat is bad. Yeah. It's like, no, but actually, no. And and then you do, you sound, I sound like, oh, I'm the fat person saying, no, no, fat is fine. And it's, I'm just making an excuse. Like I've had family members say to me, do you only do this work because you're fat? Yeah. And it's like, well, not only, I hope not, <laughs> um, but I have a very vested interest in looking deeper and understanding the truth. And I can show you lots of research and people to follow if you want to learn more, but they don't. Yeah. And it's a way that traditionally any group that's being oppressed, they are, their work against their oppression is disqualified by those who are benefiting from that oppression. Exactly. Yeah. Because that's the other big piece here, right? Yeah. This is rooted in racism. This is absolutely systemic oppression. Um, where was I reading? I don't know if it was from, it might've been from you, but um, weight stigma is the only um, implicit bias that is going up year over year. And it's going up 40% year over year. That's the Harvard implicit bias mm -hmm. study data. And I just, I mean, that's, that's horrible. So as we're getting gen, I mean, I'm going to put quotes around this generally less racist, hopefully less homophobic, transphobic, all these things, weight bias is still skyrocketing. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that we're actually getting less racist or homophobic, you know, and I don't. So here's the thing, like it's absolutely weight stigma in general the BMI scale in specific, these are all rooted in and inextricable from racism. And I cannot recommend enough um, Dr. Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body and Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast to learn more about yes. the ways that these things are rooted in racism, the ways that they continue to disproportionately impact those populations. And that's the thing, these, you know, when this is built into the, the white supremacist architecture of our culture, then it's doing more harm to people who are both um, black and fat, people of color and fat. And in general, weight stigma harms everybody, but it does the most harm to those at the highest weights and those who are multiply marginalized. And yeah, that's in, that's where I was going. And I'm, thank you for, uh, for putting it into sharp relief because it's really important, I think, to understand. I benefit a ton from white privilege. And while I'm a large fat, I'm not what's considered a super fat. My partner is a super fat. And so while that doesn't give me more oppression, it does give me a, a view into like what that is like and the differences even in our experiences as a large fat and a super fat. So, so yeah, that's all super important. And it's, you know, it's a part of the harm that these weight loss companies are doing. And it's part of the way that they profit is by really building on existing um, marginalizations. And then there are other ways that intersects. For example, a lot of gender affirmation procedures have, have BMI limits. So the healthcare is held hostage for a weight loss ransom. You know, so there's a lot, there's a lot of ways that this intersects. Oh my gosh. Yeah. To say nothing of things like knee surgeries. And right. Yeah. Yeah. I still, I'm still shocked that we use the BMI. It, again, it just, I, we know we, I, I just, this is where I get so frustrated and angry because I'm like, but we know better. Yeah. We know better. The reason it's, it's so clear it's out there. And yet 
we keep allowing ourselves in general to believe that skinnier is better. There's morality yeah. applied to it. And I always think about um, the hierarchy of bodies by uh, Sonia Renee Taylor and how we're all just trying to get to the top of the ladder, which is where mm -hmm. the thin, white, cis, heteronormative, like male is. And our proximity to that allows us more privilege. And yeah. and it's all such bullshit, Reagan. And I just, I just keep thinking, and I'm so glad you do this work. And I, I want to hear what it's like talking to weight loss practitioners, because I just feel like I started this podcast because I was like, I don't know what else to do. I just want to take a <laughs> megaphone and I'm just going to talk about it all. <laughs> and have people talk about it too because I feel so hopeless most of the time yeah. so you go in front of what I would say for a lot of fat people would be some of the most trauma inducing uh quote-unquote experts and care professionals and you talk to them about this stuff I am dying I've always been dying to actually ask you this question it's like because my parents are in the medical profession so I know what their reactions are but like what are what's it like going into a room full of doctors so steeped in the belief that fat is bad and talking to them about this what happens what's that like for you do you get nervous like I just give me the behind the scenes Reagan I want to know <laughs> <laughs> so uh, part of the reason why I chose to focus on medical care is because it makes, I think, the most use of the privileges that I have, which include like the educational privilege, but also what I would call personality privilege. I am someone who in moments of uh, conflict, I become very calm, very clear headed. All the information in my head is typically available to me. Um, I don't tend to become emotional. And so I also want to point out that if people do respond to conflict with like becoming cloudy headed and emotional and crying and screaming. That is so valid. Thank you for validating me. <laughs> you know, that is such a valid response to being mistreated. And what we have is a culture that doesn't privilege that response. And that's a problem. But because I happen to have that personality, and again, ton of luck of the draw and privilege stuff that I, that's what I do. So I think that it's doing that part of the work helps me to utilize my privilege to the best advantage. Um, so I like this. I feel like I have what I consider a, a dream job I wish didn't exist. Mm, yes. Given what exists in the world, given the world we live in, this is what I want to be doing. But I would much rather live in a world without weight stigma where I could be like a mediocre stand-up comedian somewhere. <laughs> um, but so, but this is a situation where, so when I go in, I, so when I started, I started giving these talks in 2009. And again, I am absolutely not the only person doing these talks. There are people who've been doing it since before I was born. Um, but I got into it in 2009 and I would talk about like patient engagement and people wanting, you know, seeing their bodies as valid. And that was such a flop at that time. The Q&As were straight up hostile. Doctors screaming at me, you know. No. Typically, one person with authority had invited me in and everyone else was forced to be there. Oh, those are the worst. Um, we would do things like letting them wear jeans or feeding breakfast, just like whatever would kind of try to decrease hostility. So, but I did some talks like this and I was like, all right, this is not working. So I was like, all right, new plan. You are obligated to provide ethical evidence-based medicine. Weight loss is not that. Here's an hour and a half of evidence of why. Fight me. And then the Q&As became so much more productive. Because I was like, look, you can question what I'm saying, but like you 
better be packing some evidence, right? I just gave an hour and a half of evidence. So everybody, do not bring everybody knows to my evidence fight. If what you're saying is everybody knows you're wrong, then you have nothing to say and please sit down and let somebody who knows some research stand up and talk or sit down and talk, right? So this was a, this helped a lot. I've seen change. It's too slow and it's too painful, but now I'm, you know, more often people are already aware of some of these things like with BMI and of weight stigma. I'm able to talk about patient engagement. People are asking for me to come in or choosing to come. So I'm seeing things change, but it's been interesting. I, I once gave a, uh, a presentation to several hundred uh, childhood quote unquote obesity researchers. Oh, I can't, I just got goosebumps. No. And it was gross. such like, because I take a hard line. Right. So I do a lot of work where I'm like politely asking people if they wouldn't mind not oppressing us so much. And I don't apologize for that. I think harm reduction is an important part of the work. But I also am not going to acquiesce and say, I mean, you know, what you're doing is great. I'm like, I'm sure you're well intentioned, but here's where this is going wrong and harming people. And I always point out my, I have to care more about the patient. Yes. And I care about the provider's feelings or intentions, even though I understand like, People are duped, right? Their entire training was your fat patients are walking, talking pathologies. And before you do anything else, you got to fix that. And you can, right? You're empowered. Everybody who tries hard enough loses weight. People are duped. And I do come with compassion for that because I've also, you know, not as a, a medical professional, but as a fitness professional, certainly was duped by that and certainly did plenty of harm from the stage with my little Madonna mic, right? But <laughs> but we have to start being honest about this. And so that's that's the tactic I come from. I'm sure you're, you know, at least most of you are well-intentioned. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that, you know, you've got a lot of internalized bias about fat people, but like we're going to talk about this today from a research and lived experience and social justice standpoints. And we're going to talk about how best we can care for those patients. Wow. And so, oh, that's incredible, Reagan. Oh my gosh. What kind of systemic level changes have you seen or even organizational? Like are policies changing? Do, do they walk out of the room and forget about it forever? Like, like what, what have you seen? Give us some hope, Reagan. Yeah, no. So this is the thing. And like one of the things that's difficult about all kinds of activism, I think, is that you are never in control of the outcome. And you may never know the outcome. And so as an activist, I consider doing the work to be the success, the victory. Otherwise, I would like pack it all in, right? Because I can never know. Like I talked to 1,300 people. I have no idea what happens with those people. So I have to be like, no, like being here and doing this, that was the victory. And then, you know, and I'm not the only, again, there's so many people doing this. So when you're an activist, you don't have to feel like it's all on your shoulders, Right. All we can do is what we can do with the privilege and leverage and power that we have. And then, you know, let, let go of the outcome to the extent. Right. But I do see, um, I have seen some really cool things. I once had a doctor contact me like six months ish after the talk and say, you know, I was so mad during your talk. And he said, I know you said that doctors have a hard time learning from people who aren't doctors. And he said, I don't know if you were talking to me, but I do know you were talking about me now. <laughs> um, but he he was like, I really want to talk more about it. He's like, I'm not convinced, but I want to talk more. And so he brought me on as a consultant to his practice. And then within a period of months and now years, he has moved to a fully um, weight neutral practice. Oh. Right. So there's like one one dude. What a gift for all his patients. Oh my gosh. And that's the thing that, you know, one of the things that's lucky for me about working with healthcare providers is like for each person who I change their behavior even just a little bit. 
right? They're still coming from a weight loss perspective, but they've decreased their weight stigma. There's some harm reduction there. And so, and I think that's important too, as activists that we remind ourselves, like, because it can be easy to be like harm reduction is not enough and a little bit of change is not enough. And that's true. And the people who are still have the most harm are still the most marginalized people. And so it's never enough. That's the reality of what we do, but it's something. (laughs) And I think we have to hold on to that or like, we just can't go on. Yeah, it's I'm so glad you said that because I that's that is always I'm just a baby activist. I'm just getting my feet under me with this work in an activist kind of way. And that I I mostly just feel helpless a lot, hopeless. But when you said it that way, like this conversation is the work. I won't know the impact. See, that's the problem too. I really like to know. (laughs) I want to control the impact. I want to know exactly. Um, But that's, I really love that you said that. And I I find a real comfort in that. And I imagine a lot of people listening will as well. Like it's that we have to just, and then there's a big trust there too. Just trusting that that gets to count. Yeah. Did some of this tie into, you said you recently have become a patient advocate. Is Is that connected to this work. I actually don't really know what a patient advocate is. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's lots of different ways to be a patient advocate, but essentially it is a person who works with the patient and or their family through the medical process. So there, there, are, there are patient advocates who are experts at billing. Oh, there are patient advocates who are experts at end-of-life care. So it's someone who helps you navigate the system, essentially, and has your, the patient's interest is their primary goal. Oh, that's... That's amazing because it's a very hard system to navigate. Yeah. So what's your, is your focus weight yeah, related? So I've done advocacy just as a lay person, you know, for a long time for friends, for family, for um, people who came and asked for help. Um, and so I just went, when I found out that there was a board certification for it, I just wanted to kind of um, have that as something that I studied for and, and achieved and had that certification um, to make sure that I'm keeping up with my education that I know the that I'm you know using best practices that kind of thing and also to just you know to have that certification to say like yeah I you know did the work took the test did the thing um so I don't do a ton of one-on-one patient advocacy right now um there are people who come and ask for my help and like you know sometimes I can help them and sometimes I refer them out um but in general I just wanted that to be part of to be clearly part of my work Oh, got it. To say, uh, you know, patient advocacy is something that is incredibly important to me. And, you know, I'm working on learning more and more about how to um, help patients who are dealing with BMI limits for procedures. Yes. Good. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that holding healthcare hostage for a weight loss ransom is so not, is so unbelievably harmful, unbelievably not evidence based unethical, amoral. Like I just, it's shocking. It's shocking to me. Yes. So, um, and I've had a, a series that I've been working on for a long time that'll come out and wait in healthcare in 2023 about this in, in general. And then I want to create specific resources. Like I have currently Deborah Gard, who's an incredible activist, put together resources for fighting joint replacement denials. And so she allowed me to publish those and I've added to it over time, but I have a series about joints in specific, but I would like to have for other things like gender affirmation procedures and other procedures to f- the re- the research to fight that. That's so good. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, hmm. Reagan, this is so great. I feel like we're, we're going to 
we're going to pause here because then we're going to come back with part two of the podcast talking about weight loss surgeries, which is a whole other (laughs) kettle of fish um, or bucket of worms or whatever animal (laughs) metaphor we want to use. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we talked about the research, about Weight Watchers, about Noom, about talking to physicians and the changes, the changes that you are seeing. And I'm just so grateful that you are out there doing this work, that the ripple effect is happening. Um, I'm going to also post in the show notes um, links to Fearing the Black Body and Belly of the Beast, just in case um, anyone doesn't know um, those resources. Um, and I'll, of course, share all of your information. Um, before we go, though, because I think this really ties into your patient advocate work, to my mind, um, the Hayes Health Sheets are incredible. Do you want to just say a little bit about like what inspired them? And I'll, of course, post the link, but a little background, I think, would be really useful. Yeah, so I thought for a long time, wouldn't it be cool for people, because people would come to me and say, I just got diagnosed with you know this health issue. And it's a place where you're all of your health at every size and all of your size acceptance work can really break down. Yes. Right. People are like, I'm good. I'm practicing. But then they get a healthcare diagnosis and they're like, well, obviously now it's time for weight loss. And a healthcare diagnosis doesn't make weight loss any more effective or ethical. Right. But I I totally understand that. So I was like, wouldn't it be cool to have a thing like, no, there's a weight neutral way to deal with this. But I did not feel like I was qualified to do that. So I reached out to Dr. Louise Metz and I remember the subject line was maybe a terrible idea. (laughs) And I was like, here's what I'm thinking of. Like, what if I drafted the sheets and then you as a doctor corrected my mistakes? And then um, Tiana Dodson, who's an incredible activist, um, you know, will take a look at them, also correct my mistakes. And then uh, Tiana also does web work and I had worked with her before. She's incredible. So I was like, you know, would you also do the website? And so that was the original team of people. And now Dr. Asher Larmy has uh, become an addition to our team, which I'm so incredibly excited about. Uh, Fat Doctor UK, some of you may know them as. But uh, but yeah, so that was the the impetus for that. And we were like, and let's create a resource and research bank and let's create a statement about why we don't recommend weight loss. Because I just wanted something to be able to be like, here's a link. Yes, instead of like disparate advice or copy pasting something like here's a link. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, it's a project I'm really proud of and I'm incredibly grateful to have been able to work with such a great team and be part of that team. So, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. I mean, I used it for, like I mentioned, the blood pressure cuff. I used it for when I had an ultrasound because I've got endometriosis. So I'm having a lot of pelvic ultrasounds over the last couple Mm -hmm. of years. And they're like, oh, you might have fatty liver and you should. And then the doctor was like, do you eat sardines? I was like, no. (laughs) It was just one of those moments where you're like, do you know anything? Do I know anything? Does anyone know anything? What is happening? What is happening? <laughs> oh my gosh. And then at one point, I think my blood pressure, oh, my blood pressure was high before I started using the proper blood pressure cuff. So I was looking at that. A friend of mine was like, oh, I apparently have high cholesterol. I was like, go check out the Hayes House sheets. So it's just, it is such a beautiful way because you're right. When there is a diagnosis, suddenly now there's fear and it's so easy. I've even felt it where I'm just like, oh, is this, is this the time then when I have to do this thing that I know does not work, that I know I cannot do sustainably because I have spent three decades trying? Is this the time? Like, you know, the fear really gets in there and messes yeah. with your brain and your heart. And um, I find those sheets just such an amazing touchstone. And it, 
allows me to reconnect to my body and to figure out, okay, these are the questions I'm going to ask. This is how I'm going to go in. I just feel it's like a life raft and like being equipped in a different way and like returning the agency back to me as the patient so that I don't have white coat syndrome where I just mindlessly follow what the doctor says. Right. Um, And I know it does that for lots of people because I've referred them to lots of people. So they're such a great resource. Thank you so much. And again, it's a full team effort and I'm just super grateful. Oh, thank you everybody on that team. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, Reagan. Um, thank you. And I'm excited to talk to you about weight loss surgery next time. See you next time. Thank you so much. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Every time I read something by Reagan Chastain, I feel more connected to the innate wisdom that lives in my body. I remember that I know what's best for me and I don't need to let external influences cause me to question my truths. So for Reagan's episode, The poem I chose is called Remember, and it's by Joy Harjo. Here it is. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn. That is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father. He is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are. Red earth, black earth, yellow earth white earth, brown earth, we are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life, who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them, listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind, remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember you are all people and all people are you. Remember you are this universe and this universe is you. Remember all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember language comes from this. Remember the dance language is that life is. Remember. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. 
All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.